We have a lot of rooted, deeply rooted issues in education. Who get centered as experts, whose voices we get to hear. And realizing that I do have biases, whether I don't or not, we all do. We start talking so much about it and so loudly, but then we start muffling the voices of the people who have actually experienced it. I'm Kelly Jackson, owner of the Simply Organized Teacher and host of the podcast Simply Teach. What things do we as educators need to be aware of? What things do we need to be doing or consuming so that we can be creating the best possible learning environments for all of our students, especially our students of color? That's what this Racism in Education series is all about. Practical things that we can be doing as educators to educate ourselves, educate our students, and make changes that will last for generations to come. No matter where you are on this journey, you're welcome here. Today, we're kicking off the episode with Sharonda Bossier. She works for Education Leaders of Color, which is an organization focused on providing low-income children of color opportunities for the highest levels of education. In the past few months, one of the big things we've learned is how racism plays out in the systems, how it's a construct, right? You've probably been hearing a lot of this language. That's why I brought Sharonda on to educate us on some of the ways that this plays out in our classrooms, in our education systems. Knowledge really is the first step. And I believe that if we can start with just knowing what to look out for and pay attention to, then we can start to affect change. I left this conversation, honestly, with a lot more questions than I came in with because everything she's saying just kept bringing up more questions, more wonderings about these systems and how they play out. But y'all, I also left this conversation feeling really encouraged, and my hope and my prayer is that you will too. Here's my conversation with Sharonda. Hey, Sharonda, welcome to Simply Teach. Thank you for joining me on this first episode of this series we're doing on racism in education. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I want to start off by just having you introduce yourself to my listeners. Just tell us a little bit about your background in education, who you are, what you do now. Yeah. So my name is Sharon DeBossier. Uh, I currently serve as the deputy director at a membership organization called EDLOC, or Education Leaders of Color. Uh, I started my career in public education as a high school teacher. Uh, I went through a traditional teacher preparation and credentialing process, started teaching U.S. history and government, taught for five years uh, in California, Texas, and in New York. Where were you in Texas? I was in Austin. Okay. I lived, well, I lived outside of Austin. I'm not going to say it on the thing for everybody <laughs> to hear, but I lit like I'm from right outside of Austin. Oh yeah. So I taught in South Austin at okay. um, Aikens High School. Um, yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. Uh, taught there for two years, actually from 2006 to 2008 before moving to New York City and spent, you know, two additional years in the classroom before leaving to start doing kind of organizing and advocacy work with low income families in New York City, helping them access high quality public schools in the district. Um, New York at the time was a 100% choice system. And what we know is that low income families often are locked out of information around application processes and deadlines, etc. And so we were doing some work around that. And that just sort of grew into a grassroots movement around demanding access to higher quality schools. And then now spend all of my time supporting leaders who are in executive positions in districts and in education nonprofits, um, thinking about what it means to lead fully as people of color and also thinking about what it means to push for and advance equity agendas in uh, districts across the country. So awesome. That sounds like a super, your title, deputy, what is it? Deputy Deputy director. director. It sounds so legit. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, you talking about New York public schools and like the whole choice thing. So we were just on vacation last week and nice white parents was our, like our road trip podcast. Yeah. And it was really eye opening to me. It was really fascinating mm-hmm. to me because in Texas, every like education system I've been made aware to made aware of is like public school. You just go where you're zoned, which there's issues with that too. But like the whole concept of choice and it just like was mind blowing to me how different schools yeah. are just across the country. Yeah. So interestingly, you know, we both are familiar with the sort of greater Austin area, right? Mm -hmm. And what I would say is that choice exists in Austin too. It just looks different, right? And so I taught at Aikens High School, which is in South Austin, and um, many of my students actually were bused to us from the east side because they were opting out of some of the legacy you know, high schools on the east side. Mm-hmm. And that created an interesting set of tensions with kids who were from South Austin, right? Because One isn't is like the, the east side of Austin kind of like the... It's the historically black side of town. Right, and right? so it's, it's, it's on the other side of the freeway, literally right. I-35 sort of splits the east and west sides of Austin. And most of the kids who were being bused to us in South Austin were black, right? And were often lower income than the students who were uh, living in the homes and in the areas surrounding our school. Um, and so class and racial tensions definitely flared up a lot. And we didn't talk about that as choice, right? In the same mm-hmm. way that we might talk about choice in, in, in the context of a New York City, but it was definitely family saying, my kid can't go to Reagan, right? Mm-hmm. And so what are the other options? And some districts I think are, are just, I won't say a little further along, right? Because that would say that they aren't struggling with the same issues and, and they are, right? Um, but I think some schools have had formalized choice structures for longer than others. Um, but all districts across the country are always trying to figure out what do we do when we know that we have had historically low performing schools what does it look like to provide families an option or an alternative, both in the short term, right? Because your kid only gets one chance to be a fourth grader, right? And you don't want to sacrifice your kid's fourth grade experience, but also in the long term, right? As we think about what school turnaround can and should look like. So, um, you know, my family opted me out of my high school. I grew up in Watts um, and the school that I was zoned to actually was built in response to community demands coming out of the 1965 Watts riots. By the time it was time for me to enter high school in 1997, um, my family was like, girl, you can't go there, right? And so they sent me to a school 20 minutes west, right? Um, I was in the magnet program, but still our, my high school's uh, graduation rate was 60% when I entered, right? And so when we think about choice, um, lots of things go into that. Uh, and definitely sometimes families are choosing among not great options. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the conversation Cody and I kept having after each episode is it's like, what I kept hearing the people say is like, I want this greater, like I want this greater thing for our country, for our district, whatever, but like, I don't want to sacrifice my kids for it. And I'm glad that we got, like, we were able to listen to, we don't have kids, but I'm glad that I, we are having these conversations now, even before kids, because I think that, you know, that is a choice that you like really have to think about. Are you willing to, am I as a white woman willing to like sacrifice maybe some advantages for my kids for the greater good of our district or our community or whatever. Yeah. 
You know, it's interesting. I had this conversation and I know this is not what we were planning to talk about, <laughs> but you, you know, you, you wrote me in, but I, I had this conversation. So my, my sister is married to a friend of mine. Actually, he and I used to work together and he didn't go home for Thanksgiving one year. And I was like, come by my house. It'll be great. He met my sister. They're married. They have a kid. Uh, he is white. My sister is black. So they have, my niece is, she's three, she's biracial. And my brother-in-law, because he had spent much of his professional career working in traditional public schools, had gone to traditional public schools himself, was really committed to this idea that their kids would go to traditional public schools. And I was like, that's great. I get it. Yes, yes, yes. And then the way that they exercised choice was they bought a really expensive home, right? And so he gets to say that my nieces and nephews will go to really expensive, sorry, really nice traditional public schools, right? But it's like, it's because you bought into a district, right? And And so that too is a form of choice, right? That's the exact same conversation we had because we've always talked about like living out in the country, having land. And it's like, okay, but when we do that, we're putting Mm. ourselves like in our area where we live, like that means better schools because people have more money because they have land. Mm -hmm. And it's like, so now we're really thinking, is that the option? Like, is that where we want to go for kids? Okay. Enough about all, yeah. <laughs> all that. I'm sure people <laughs> want to know about my road trip conversations. Um, you're kicking off this series on how racism plays out in the education system. And I want to talk about the system, but I also want to talk because most of my listeners are classroom teachers. Yeah. Let's start with some of the common ways that we are somebody listening as a classroom teacher would see these see racism or these systems playing out in their actual classroom. Yeah. You know, I'm going to do my best to avoid jargon as part of this conversation. Right. Because I think that for a lot of us, we hear sort of buzzwords or we Mm -hmm. hear shorthand and it makes it hard to really sit with the meat of the the conversation we're having. Right. And so I I believe things like the school to prison pipeline are real. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, and, and all of that. Right. But you're like, well, I don't see myself feeding into a pipeline. Right. How does this, what does this have to do with me? Um, And I think about my own practice as a teacher, right, even as a pretty progressive Black woman, right, always thinking about sort of how I show up in the world, how the world sees me, how I want my young people, right, who are my students to see themselves. And there are a few ways that I have seen sort of racism and sort of some of the broader systems play out. One is around discipline disparities, right? Who are you sending out of the classroom, who is moving up and down your consequence chart, right? Um, like who gets a who gets a verbal warning versus who immediately, right, has to uh, you know face some other consequence. I think a lot about how we um, sort of quiet and push our young girls, particularly our young girls of color, to shrink in classrooms, right? They come in with these big personalities and we are like, your big personality is disrupted and not welcome here, right? And so much of that is rooted not just in racism, right? But also around our expectations about how young girls are supposed to show up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I also think a lot about what we put in front of our young people with respect to uh, like the curriculum, right? Who is centered as experts, whose voices are centered as objective versus whose voices we bring in as part of the conversation around personal narrative, right? And that shows up a lot in the older. Can you elaborate on that? No, can you just elaborate on that, what you, that last thing you said? Yeah. So, you know, when I think about, 
I'll, I'll, I'll use a specific example. I think about teaching um, what it was like to live in the United States during sort of World War II and the post-war you know, war era, right? Mm-hmm. And we often teach that, again, I'm a history teacher, right? So like nerd out with me for a little bit. We, we often teach that as this moment of like America finally cementing its sort of place as like the dominant superpower, right? And we talk about it as a time of prosperity for the country, right? It's where we really see the building of the middle class. And so we are like, yes, we go to war, our production capacity is wildly like outpacing anyone else's we win the war we are like on the right side of history we're doing the right thing for humanity yay us you come back you get the gi bill you get a home you go to college for free right and like we are talking about lifting entire families out of poverty right because of our sort of post-war um just economic boom right we talk about the baby boom all sorts of things And that is right and true and real for white Americans, Mm -hmm. right? It is not right and true and real for the rest of us. But in telling that story, we we talk about it without any of the qualifiers, right? And so if you have a teacher, if you have a history teacher who was like, well, I want my kids to understand that not everyone was having the same experience, if they bring in the experiences of migrant farm workers who were brought here through the Bracera program, right? If they bring in the experiences of Black World War II veterans who came home and sometimes were lynched, right? If they bring in the experiences of people who were experiencing redlining, they are sort of brought in as narrative voices, right? Mm -hmm. They are brought in as, well, here's the dominant sort of thing that was happening and most people got to do this and some folks were left out, right? And so we don't talk about it in a way that um, helps people understand that the exclusion of domestic workers and farm workers from a lot of the New Deal programs, as an example, was systemic, right? And intentional Mm -hmm. and part of a political compromise. We don't talk about the fact that people got redlined out of opportunity, right? Systemically, right? And was part of how systemic racism shows up. And so when we are reading primary source documents, right, when we are reading historical accounts, we read them as if the white narrative is the sort of default and everyone else is providing a little context and color. Okay. And so in doing that, right, we are, we are saying that anything that is not sort of white, right, is is a deviation from the norm. And you have to imagine what that does for a young person, right? Especially for those of us who give assignments where we're like, go ask your parents where they were on 9-11, as an example, right? Mm-hmm. And we love to do that as, as an assignment to help young people connect to a particular moment in history. And your teacher has said that everyone in the U.S. was having this one experience, right? And you go home and you ask your family and they've had a very different one. Right. And so you're trying to figure out how to make those two things both be true. Um, And that's just a very hard thing for a young person to do. And so um, I think that that is one of the ways that um, we don't talk about it a lot, but that racism shows up. Whose voices are we centering as sort of um, factual and objective? And then whose experiences are we saying are, you know, a a deviation from that? So this might be like a really... I know there's no such thing as a dumb question, but this might be like a really base level question, but I'm going to ask it because if I'm wondering it, I think probably other teachers are wondering it. 
are there like already the, like you're talking about, we learn about World War II, World War II and we're looking at stuff from like written by white Americans, right? Mm-hmm. Is the stuff out there by other black Americans or other people of color? And we just aren't like, we don't have as good of access to it or we aren't working hard to get access to it. Or is it not there because it wasn't prioritized as like being recorded in that time? Yeah, a little bit of both. So there are organizations and historians who have gone back to try and sort of catalog and capture a lot of this, right? It doesn't often exist in neatly packaged curriculum bundles, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I would say facing history in ourselves is a good place to start as, you know, are a lot of, you know, interestingly, the U.S. government did a lot of this in the, during the Great Depression, right? So interviewed formerly enslaved people, you can actually hear their voices, right? Um, And so if you go through the government archives, and if you've ever searched the government archives, you know they're a mess. (laughs) Haven't, but But a lot of this, yes, um, a lot of this, or they're not very user-friendly, right? You're like, can someone get like a 27-year-old programmer on this? Because this is hard to navigate. Um, but I, um, what, what you often, and you can find novels and it's unfortunate that that, that, that is an additional ask and an additional lift on teachers. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, especially because so many of you were juggling so many things. And I remember this, right. I remember being like, okay, I have to read this novel cause I know I want my kids to read it. And then I have to figure out what parts of it I want to assign. Cause I'm the history teacher and the kids aren't going to read a whole book for history, <laughs> even though I often made them read entire novels. Um, but thinking about that is, is it's, it's an additional ask and it's an additional sort of lift for teachers. Um, I think what we started doing in my history department, the one that I really sort of loved, um, was dividing up that work, right? Mm-hmm. And just sort of saying, like, you take this, <laughs> I'll take this, and we'll kind of come together and share the primary source documents that we're able to locate. But yeah, it's an additional ask. Yeah. So what are, those were some of the like common ways that we see um, racism playing out in education. What are more of the uncommon, the hidden, the things that we're going to really have to look for to see, I guess maybe this is even more of like the systematic type stuff that's playing out. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we talk about this a lot, right. But um, I would say that there's been this sort of conversation around expanding access, particularly, I mean, this was happening around MOOCs. So you remember those, like the sort of massive online courses Mm -hmm. um, and currently happening in the sort of post-COVID pre-vaccine world where people are like online and virtual learning could be great for everyone because it doesn't matter if your school doesn't have a fantastic algebra teacher. You can take algebra with the best fantastic algebra teacher there is. And I think actually what we are seeing is we are seeing people with privilege hoard that privilege and hoard that access. And so what does that look like? That looks like really homogenous learning pods, right? So you talk about your little farm community, right? You're like, we want to live in the farm, on a farm, because we want our kids to like, I don't know, get dirty and play and do things that kids are supposed to do. And like, that's hard to do in New York City, right? And you're like, great, got it, cool. COVID hits you're trying to figure out how to get your kids some semblance of normalcy, right? Some ability to interact with other kids their age. You build a learning pod, right? And a couple of families go in on a teacher. It is highly likely because we do not pay teachers enough in this country that teachers are going to make more leading a learning pod, right? It also is highly likely that your learning pod is both 
sort of socioeconomically and racially homogenous, mm-hmm. right? Because you're doing it with your neighbors, right? And we know that housing segregation is a very real thing in this country. I, I say this because I'm having conversations with people now where they're like, ooh, yikes, I see that. Don't want my kid to be in a homogenous learning pod. And they're like, do you know any black kids who want to join our learning pod? And I'm like, so tokenism is also a problem, right? And are you creating this sort of community where this young person, this child, right, will feel welcome and will Mm -hmm. feel seen and will feel whole and will feel like they can contribute, right, as a full member of whatever this community shapes up to be? So the hoarding of resources is one way that I think people don't often attach it to to racism, right? They're just like, well, it just happens to be my neighbor and everyone in my neighborhood is white. And I'm like, yeah, racism <laughs> is why you don't have any neighbors of color, right? Um, I say the, the other way that we see this play out, right? Um, I'm going to go back to the texts, right? And who gets centered as experts, whose voices we get to hear, whose stories we get to read, right? I grew up in Watts. I know way too much about Jane Austen, right? And not enough about Alice Walker, right? Like I just, I had a couple of teachers who like exposed me to black writers. It's interesting. So my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Poppy, who I love, right? Loved her. She was the best. Um, would give me extra reading. And one year she gave me Johnny Tremaine and I just had to come back to school and say like, girl, this is, I can't read this. Like, I don't, what is this? This, I don't know these people this is not my thing. And so she actually, she understood what I was trying to say to her as a fifth grader. Was she a white teacher? She was a white lady. White, white lady. Yeah. So she understood what I was trying to say to her as a fifth grader and then started giving me books that featured black characters. Right. But I was a good student and I did extra reading. And so it never occurred to her that I might want to read about people who had experiences like mine, right. Mm -hmm. Or families that were from where my family was from. And it took me saying, I hate this book. I don't want to read about this white boy for her to sort of get it. Right. Um, And she's still one of my favorite teachers. Right. But it was, it was a conversation that I had to struggle through having as a fifth grader. Um, I would say another way that people are often uh, not seeing how racism shows up. You know, we talked about discipline disparities, right. Who gets put out of class, who, et cetera. Also course access at your school, right? Who is tracked to the higher level, more selective courses or honors courses, et cetera. Who is given real enrichment opportunities is another thing, right? Um, are your students given access to art classes, to music classes, et cetera? A lot of folks, particularly folks who are teaching in low-income communities or who are teaching in kind of no excuses charters, as an example, right, are teaching in schools where schools have made the decision that because students are quote unquote behind academically, right, that they need double block reading and double block math. And you're like, like, nope, no. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And you're like, at at some, when, when do kids find their passion? Right. And there's this idea that education is not supposed to unlock our genius and unlock our passions. And often that shows up in low income schools. Right. And that also is about racism. Right. That is also about like this kid shouldn't learn to paint because he can't read on grade level. Right. And so pushing back on those kinds of things. And I will say like as someone who has done work and done organizing work in support of charters, many of them, no excuses charters. Right. Um, it's an ongoing conversation with me and my work and a lot of the leaders we support, like why when we are talking about the academic supports and intervention, low-income students, particularly low-income students of color need, the first place we look to cut is the enrichment stuff, the stuff Mm -hmm. that's meant to make them whole people. Right. So the loaded question, (laughs) 
Like, okay. What do we do? Like, we're like, I'm really enjoying this conversation and I feel like I'm learning so much and my eyes are being open to so much, but it's like, where do you even start? Even with like the, the, um, discipline and like paying, I mean, is it just like at first paying attention, like to noticing what you're doing? How do you, how do we change those things about ourselves and how do we change things within the system? Yeah. You know, I think a lot about when I was going through my teacher prep program experience, we talked a lot about gender and how gender showed up in the classroom, right? So I remember my colleagues who were, you know, math and science teachers being taught to look out for how often girls were talking in their class, right? So make sure that you're calling on girls, make sure that, you know, your girl students are raising their hands in math. Like we want to build young women who are confident mathematicians and scientists, right? And in, in the social sciences program, we weren't pushed to consider that as much, right? Um, but my, my colleagues in math and science got tools to help them manage and think about and notice and audit themselves, right, on who was monopolizing the airtime in the classroom. And I would encourage folks to do the same if they have a racially diverse classroom, right? I'm like, am I creating a space where my students of color feel like they can speak up and they can raise their hand and they can push back, right? I would say, I would think a lot about um, who I am, who I am sending out of class if I'm sending students out of class, right? I recognize that, you know, that's still a decision that sometimes teachers have to make, right? Um, is like, how often am I sending out my students of color? How often am I, am I sending out my black girls? How often, I, how often am I sending out my Latino boys, et cetera, right? Um, I would do an audit of my bookshelf, right? Mm-hmm. Like who, not just who are the writers, right? But who are the characters who are centered in these stories? Um, we do this again a lot with girls, right? As someone who has um, a lot of nieces and I love them all, right? <laughs> I'm always like, I'm getting you this book about, you know, a black girl who's an engineer, right? And I like being very intentional about ensuring that I'm picking literature and I'm picking books and I'm picking shows and movies, right? That are sending the kinds of messages about what's possible for them that I want them to, um, that I want them to see. And I encourage educators to do the same. Um, And then I would say like, think about your professional development, right? So look at your professional development calendar and figure out what kinds of conversations are on the horizon and ask either your grade team leader or your department chair, right? Whoever the sort of teacher leader is to figure out how you can have conversations about how race and class and privilege are showing up in your school community, right? Um, And I, I don't think that to start, if, if your community hasn't started these kinds of conversations at all, right, you necessarily need to have a really formal conversation. But I think having having adults read something, right, an anchor text, have a shared experience, and just begin to process what they are seeing um, is really helpful. My hunch is that if there are teachers of color on your staff, they probably have a lot to say that they have mm-hmm. not been invited to say, right? Yeah. And so I would think about how you create space for that too. Yeah, I think what I'm I'm learning, and, and you know, we see people saying this all the time, but it's just a lot of listening and a lot of opening up the for the conversations. Because I think for me as like a type A list planner, like I wanna, I mean, that's why I started this podcast. It's like, what can I do? Okay, I can make a podcast and interview people where we can talk about this, right? Like I want like a very step-by-step thing that I can do, but this thing is so big that 
there's not really like a step-by-step process that we can go through. Right. And I think what I'm learning is that I, I have to do the little things that I can, you know, if I was in the classroom, in my classroom with the teachers that I'm teaching with, with my husband and, you know, my family, like, because those little things I think will eventually expand. And that is when we will begin to see big change. That's my hope. At yeah. Least. Yeah. I mean, none of this is linear, right? And if it were easy, we, we would have solved it. I will say that, you know, white kids need anti-racist role models too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, I think we often infantilize white people in conversations about race and systemic racism, right? But like, there is actually a long history of white people being allies in the fight for, um, in the fight for justice, right? And I would say, um, we have to figure out how to elevate those examples too, right? So that so that white children have an opportunity to see themselves, right? And, and folks who are on the right side of history. I also think that it's okay for young people to see us struggle through this. I think as adults, we often are, we feel the pressure to be perfect all the time, right? And to like have young people feel like um, they only get to see the best of us. Right. And I, I think it's okay for young people to understand that these conversations are messy and that they are emotional and that we will make missteps and mistakes. Right. Um, but that there is, there is grace and redemption in our community. However, we are defining that, right. That this is a, this is a journey we are all on together, that we are trying to build something together that has never existed. Right. And I think it's really important that, that young people see that, understand that and know that. I think that's a really encouraging note to end off on for the teachers listening, like to not feel this pressure to be perfect and to get it all right. Um, so thank you for that. Will you wrap up by just telling people where they can come and follow you if they want to stay connected and learn more about what you're doing? <laughs> sure. Uh, so if you'd like to follow my organization on Twitter, we are at at Lock National. So E-V-L-O-C National. Uh, I am also on Twitter at Bossier So B-O-S-S-I-E-R-S. I will tell you that I tweet a lot about Black popular culture. <laughs> so if you're interested in mostly the education stuff, feel free to follow Ed Lock on Twitter. Uh, that is where we are most active. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Again, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming along on this journey. If you want any more information about the ladies that you're going to hear on this series or anything that you hear that we talk about in these episodes, you can find all the information over on the simplyorganizedteacher.com forward slash mini. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Simply Teach. If you enjoyed it, I'd be so grateful to have you share it over on social media and tag me at the Simply Organized Teacher. Or you can head to wherever you are listening to this podcast right now and subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. This episode was edited by the team over at Podcastology. Remember all the show notes, links to things we talked about, classroom organization resources, and all of the courses can be found over on my website, thesimplyorganizedteacher.com. Make sure to join my email list and get weekly organization tips straight to your inbox by heading to thesimplyorganizedteacher.com slash email. Y'all have a great week.